morning, everyone. The reading from this morning is Romans 1, verse 18 to the end. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honour him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the truth about God Uh, Sorry, the truth exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to to the dishonouring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonourable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them but give approval to those who practice them. This is God's word. Um, You will have just heard, am I on that day? Yes, you will have you will have heard. Sorry, how's that? Uh, with with that rain, I'll let you put it up if it needs to go up. Um, you will have heard in that passage that today's message is a is a big one. Uh, we are today dealing with perhaps the hardest, the hardest, sharpest, most difficult truth that we find in the Bible: the wrath. Of God. And so today, it, it is going to be hard for us to hear. Just from the outset, I just want to acknowledge that it is going to be hard for us to hear. But it is entirely necessary that we do hear. And so I just want to just acknowledge if you're visiting here today, what a week to come, all right? What a week to come. You have arrived on probably the hardest week that we have hit. This is, this is actually one of the reasons why as a church we preach through books of the Bible. So we pick a book, we work all the way through it. And what that does is it means that we, don't, we can't skip this. We can't just pretend this isn't here and move on. We must all as a church 
come underneath these hard things that we're hearing. We're not going to dodge it. In fact, I think what is probably true is that the parts of the Bible that offend us the most, guys, those are probably the parts we need to hear the most urgently, isn't it? Because of the, those are the places in our lives where we are going to find ourselves at odds with our Creator. And so it's those places where we had better and urgently come underneath His Word. And so let me pray for us all. We're going to need a bit of, a bit of God's grace today and His mercy that we, so that we could hear and understand His will for us. Let's pray. Lord, I pray now, as I have been praying all week long, Lord, as I've been considering these words, Lord, that we would as a church be soft to your word. Lord, it is, it is said that, that soft words can produce hard people and hard words can produce soft people, Lord, and I pray that, yeah, as we, as we consider the truth about our condition as humanity and our condition as individuals, Lord, that we would humble ourselves. Lord, I pray that you would lower our defenses that automatically shoot up when we hear these kind of verses. Lord, and we would hear your truth to be true and see it for what it is. Good news, because it points to us, points us towards our creator. Amen. Amen. Uh, there was a, a ultra liberal, like theologically liberal, not politically liberal, a, a liberal progressive theologically so uh, minister. And he was preaching to his church uh, and his, he was telling a story about an interaction he had had. The interaction that he was sharing went like this. He said that he was walking down the street and a, a, um, another Christian came to him and asked him, sir, are you saved? And the man responded, and, you know, with a, with a little cheeky grin on his face to his, his church, Sir, saved from what? And, of course, he thought that this was genius and insightful and, uh, yeah, a, a cheeky answer to, a, uh, to this man's question. Now, the truth is, both questions are good questions, correct? Are you saved? That's a great question. So the sincere man that had this question for this, he didn't know he was a minister, right? He just thought he was a man on the street. Um, that's a good question. And to be honest, that minister's response was also a, a good question. Saved from what? Of course, he thought it was a good question in that it was, in that it was cutting and, and, and uh, undermining. But no, it was a good question because we need to answer that question. Saved from what? Might be a bit uh, disturbing to think of churches like that that so ignore the teaching of the Bible. So when we speak of being saved, what are we talking about? What are we being saved from? That's the question. Let us read the first verse today to see our answer. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Friends, Jesus does save us from death. He does save us from the consequences of sin. He does save us from a myriad of things. But first and foremost, he saves us from the wrath of God for our sin. And so today, as we consider the Bible's teaching on this very difficult topic, uh, the, the human condition, our condition as, as people, 
we're going to work through four parts today to help us get our heads around this. We're going to work through these four things. The nature of God's wrath, that it is revealed from heaven. The reason for God's wrath, the expression of God's wrath, what it actually looks like. And finally, our response to God's wrath. So firstly, let us consider the nature of God's wrath. Before we um, jump into verse 18, we actually need to go back because we need to read this verse in context of what we just saw last week. Otherwise, it doesn't make as much sense. So we're going to be going back to 16 to 17 first. You'll see it on the screen then. If you are here last week, uh, if you missed last week, I'd recommend you go grab that one so you have the context here. Um, but what I want you to see here are the four fours. Do you see that? For I'm not ashamed. For is the power of God. For in the righteousness of God is revealed. For the wrath. See, there's the four fours. Those are very important because those words are our logical connectors. So here's what he's saying. Here's what he's saying. Firstly, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Next one. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. How so, Paul? Why? How? For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. God is declaring sinners to be righteous in his sight. Why, why does that matter? Why does it matter that God would declare people righteous? Verse 18, for the wrath of God is being revealed. That word revealed is actually present. It's being revealed presently. It's unfolding as we speak. It is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and the unrighteousness of men. What we see here is that sin has a consequence. Sin has a consequence. The wrath of God is coming against, very important word, all. All unrighteousness, friends, that's me and you. It's my sin and it is your sin. That word is important because we are all sinners. Both by nature, we're, just, we're, we're all born that way, and by choice, we also choose it. We can't play the one or the other card. We are both sinners by nature and by choice. It's worth saying, right? We live in Australia, 2021. Is there a more unpopular thing to say than what I just said? And some of you are thinking that right now, right? Is there a more unpopular thing? We have in Australia, 2021, a strong impulse to play down sin. Even as Christians in the church, strong impulse to soften these words, to pretend they're not true. We are like children having a tea party on train tracks, on a blind corner, pretending there's no freight train coming. Romans 1 is the siren. Hey, there's a train coming. It's coming. It is real. Pretending it's not there doesn't make it any less real. The, un the, un the wrath of God is coming against all unrighteousness. And so, culturally, we are going to do everything we can to deny this. We're going to justify, we're going to minimize, we're going to excuse, we're going to pretend it's not true. Why is that? Why is it that every one of us, to some degree, but at least every one of us for sure, do this? We bristle at this idea. We bristle at this idea. Why? 
what's happening in us. I think ultimately what we have to, what it all comes down to, I think, is that we have a faulty view of the world, a faulty worldview, a faulty system of thinking. Where it is faulty is that we put ourselves in the center of it instead of God. Sin makes no sense if we are the center of the universe. Sin makes infinite sense if God is the center and he has created us for his glory and we have rejected him. Another way to say it, maybe using Romans 1 language, is that we have a creation-centered view, not a creator-centered view. When we put the creator in the middle, we find our problem. I mean, we, we, we see the solution to our problem. We understand sin. What we're doing is we are, when we deny sin is we're, we're elevating ourselves and minimizing God. That is our fundamental problem, the minimization of God. On account of our sin, the wrath of God is coming. It is being revealed presently. Well, we've got to say here that we've got to define wrath at least a little bit, right? We, we, we've got to say a few things about it. We mustn't ever think of it as like a raw, unchecked rage, which is probably some of the views you guys have right now, right? Because there's, there's a few reasons why. It's, it's like, you know, we have that view of like God just flying off the handle, like rage. That is not what we see in the Bible. Why? Because his wrath is, is perfect. It is pure. It is righteous. It is good. It is actually praiseworthy. There is no shadow or darkness in it. It is not out of proportion. We, we don't even have a category for this kind of thing, guys. We, we just don't. When we think of wrath, when we think of anger, we think of just rage, sinful rage, abusive, violent. Like, we think of human rage. It's, it's not the same thing. It is entirely different. Nothing could be further from the truth. And to think in those terms is to really, really dishonor God. No, his, his wrath, it is fair. It is proportional, it is good, it is righteous, it's pure, it is just. And it's also an important thing to say that it, his, his wrath only exists because of his love. The opposite of wrath isn't love, friends. The opposite of wrath is indifference. It would be a shrug from God. No, God loves deeply, so he has the capacity for great wrath against evil. God, his wrath springs from his great love. No, he loves deeply, and so he has great capacity for wrath against evil. We mustn't think about it as, as a human rage. Let's move on to the reason for God's wrath. Verse 18 down to 23, I think. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, that's us, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. It's a really important idea there. The first reason Paul gives us is the suppression of the truth. He says this, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly perceived even since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. Bit interesting what he just said. I don't know if you just caught that, but basically, he's saying that there's no such thing as a like a pure, genuine atheist. 
a bit of a big claim, I think. He's saying that you know, atheists don't believe in God. Well, according to these verses, God doesn't believe in atheists, which is kind of a funny thing to think, right? Um, why? Because he says, because the existence of God is plain to them. It is intuitive. It is instinctive. It is in there, in their moral compass. Deep down, he says, intellectually sure, they might deny it, but deep down they know. That's what he's saying. The knowledge of God is instinctual for humans. Even Freud, famous psychologist, he would say that humanity is incurably religious. And of course, he said that with a big sneer, as if it was the biggest problem on earth. But he's, pick, he's picking up on the truth, right? We are incurably religious in some way or another. So, how is it then that we account for all the atheists in the world if God says there's no atheists? Verse 18, we, and I'm going, to use the, I'm going to use the language of we because it's us, it's humanity, so I'm going to include myself and I'm going to include you. We suppress the truth. We suppress the truth. Why? Because acknowledging our creator is traumatic for us because it puts us underneath him, it puts us underneath his authority, it puts us underneath his say. It's traumatic, and so we suppress the knowledge of God in our lives. And apparently, we are all guilty of this. We are all guilty of this active suppression in our lives. Listen to the words of Jesus here. Uh, I'm sure you've all heard of John 3:16, God so loved the world, he gave his only son, so that everyone who believed in him might not die but have eternal life, right? John 3:16. This is straight afterwards. This is what Jesus says in John 3:19. This is his, it's his judgment, it's his, it's his verdict on the world. He says, and this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world and people love the darkness. Guys, I, <laughs> this had me in tears this week. I'm not even kidding. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Because it would be traumatic to have that evil exposed and humble ourselves and come into the light. No, we hated the light and preferred the darkness. The light has come, and yet we cling to our evil. <laughs> we suppress the truth of God. We deny, we pretend there's nothing wrong, we pretend there is no God, and look, some of us in this room right now are suppressing. We, we, that's where we are now. If we're, if we're honest, you're allowed to be honest, Red Church. Suppressing. Suppressing the truth. What we're saying there is we're saying, I don't want reality. I don't want to enter into a reality where God is king. I want to be my own king, and so I'll pretend and live in this bubble where I am still in charge of my life. Suppressing the truth. Romans 1, it's telling us instinctively we know there is a God. And yet we suppress that at some level. And so we are accountable to him for that denial. Everyone. You and I. Verse 21. 
4. Though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. What he's saying here is that you and I, we suffer naturally from some kind of like internal broken rationality, internal broken morality, that our thinking is broken, our minds are broken. The way we conceive of the world is off, fractured. Deep down, we have a distorted version of reality that we live out of that is it's wrong. It's out of step with actual reality. Futile, hostile, and foolish. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, fools and, really important word here, exchanged the glory of God, the glory of the immortal God, for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. This word exchange is where we get to the heart of things, I think, in this passage. This is the, this is the center. It's not just an act of suppression that's there, but there is also an exchange happening here, an exchange. If we keep reading, we see that word three times, so it's one of those reoccurring words. Um, the first two, I think, hold the key for the reason for God's wrath. This is, this is the center of it. The, the act of suppression, yes, but then this as well. Firstly, verse 23, we exchanged the glory of God for images, for non-gods, the stuff, the things that he has made. And, verse 25, we exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and we worshipped and served the creature, his stuff, what he, what he has made, whether that's other people, sexuality, jobs, uh, success, the applause of people, the Instagram feed, the Instagram followers and likes and whatever it is, right? We, we, we follow things. We worship things rather than the creator. So this is, this is the center of it. This is the center of sin. This is the definition of sin. This is the tragic trade, I've called it. We have exchanged God for his stuff. We've looked upon the creator and said, no, thank you. I would prefer to have your things the things that he has made for us to enjoy as his children. We have each and every one of us turned instead to the creation which God has made for us to enjoy, and we've worshipped it. We've worshipped that instead of him. We have treasured stuff more than God. We have loved stuff more than God. We have we've worshipped idols. It's the biblical language. We are all guilty of it, you, you and I. We are all guilty of it, and we are under the wrath of God because of it. We have a worship problem. The Bible calls this idolatry. In, in, the, Old Testament, in the old ancient world, right, idolatry was really obvious. It was, it was like statues, pictures of things that were bowed down and worshipped, things they actually made. Um, today, we don't do that so much, although it's been known to happen. Um, today, it looks different, but in the heart, it is the same thing that we're doing. We are worshipping things. We take something that God has made, that is good, we put it in the place of God. We sacrifice for it. We, um, put it we, we look to it as our place of security, where we get meaning from in our lives. 
um, and what's funny is we can do this with kind of everything, anything. Like, there's not just like one thing that like humanity worldwide worships instead of God. It's like we do, we can do this with anything. Some people worship their dog by the way they live their life. Do you know what I mean? It's like it becomes the center of everything. John Calvin, uh, one of the world's greatest theologians, he famously said that the human heart is an idle factory. We're just going to keep coming up with more stuff, right? There's no end to the things that we can look to for our significance. We worship money. That's an obvious one. How am I going to feel safe and secure in this life? Get more money. That's, that's, that's a very obvious one. Um, sex and relationships. People live for that stuff. People put people on a pedestal. We, uh, the praise of people, success, all these things. We put them in the place of God. We sacrifice to have them. We praise them. We live for them. They become our meaning, our driving engine for life. It is the tragic trade. We have switched the creature for the creator. We have worshipped the creation instead. Matt Chandler, he said this, which I thought was really helpful in one of his books. He says, the universe shudders in horror that we have this infinitely valuable, infinitely deep, infinitely rich, infinitely wise, infinitely loving God, and instead of pursuing him with steadfast passion and enthralled fury, I like that, that's good, instead of loving him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, instead of attributing to him glory and honor and praise and power and wisdom and strength, we just try to take his toys and run. That is the problem, friends. The universe shudders that we would do that and let us today shudder that we would do that. We've all done it. We all do it. It is the definition of sin. And because of this, the wrath of God is coming. Because of this, the wrath of God is coming. I might just get someone to do me a favor. Larry, do you mind just popping it off the air cons? I'm frying up here. It's like an air fryer. Boop, beep. It's just a button. Thanks, guys. Sorry, Larry, you're just the first one I saw next to the thing. Oh, it's going to be so much better. Sorry if you're cold, but I'm frying. You can understand why. Point three, the expression of God's wrath. This one's maybe a little bit surprising. There's a phrase we get three times in here. You can see it highlighted. God gave them up. God gave them up. God gave them up. Therefore, God gave them up to the lust of their heart, to impurity. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For they did not see fit to honor God, God gave them up to the base mind to do what ought not to be done. When we, when we all think about God's wrath, when I started this message and we, we were thinking about that, we were probably all thinking the thunder from heaven kind of thing, the, what we call the active wrath of God, where he actively judges. That's not what Romans 1 is talking about at all, just so you know. That is totally in the Bible. It is elsewhere. It's actually next week, if you come back next week, uh, if you're brave enough. Um, he's not talking about that here. He's talking in Romans 1 about the passive wrath of God. The passive wrath of God. This is different. Okay? You might not have ever heard about this before, but this is where it is here. He's talking about God withdrawing his protection. He's talking about God handing them over to experience the consequences of their own choices. It's very different. God is he's, he's giving us over 
to the consequences of our evil. We're going we're to reap what we sow. This is, this is one way that God displays his wrath. He lets us have what we want. He lets us have our choices. He doesn't stop us. He lets us go. If you think about it, it's equally as horrible and terrible as his act of wrath, that he would let us choose that. But this is what's happening. He's saying, you, you want to have life apart from me? Well, this is what you're going to get. And you're going to spiral into the depths of your own sin. Oscar Wilde, I never thought I'd quote Oscar Wilde in Romans 1, but here you go. He says, when the, when the gods wish to punish us, they answer our prayers. This is kind of what he's saying. Again, it's tongue-in-cheek. Oscar Wilde, if you know him, not a Christian man. Um, but what he's saying is that God's going to let us have our desires, and they're going to destroy us, and we're going to reap what we sow. This is God's act of wrath. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. He says, there are two kinds of people in the world. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says, thy will be done. God is handing us over to the ever-increasing terribleness of our own choices, the ever-increasing terrible cycle of our sin. And then he, what we see next is he gets to the, um, his example, which is in the area of sexuality. This is what you would have heard in the text, I'm sure. So he, he, he pays attention now to sexuality for a bit and says, let's see it play out here. He says, therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the, create, the creature rather than the creator, who was blessed forever. Amen. The first thing I want to point out here is that the, uh, the word translated in the ESV, the lusts, lusts of their heart, the literal translation there is the over-desires. Over the over-desires of their heart, right? God gave them up to the over-desires of their heart that they might indulge in their indulge their broken sexuality. And this is what he's saying. He's saying that this is actually true for all humanity, regardless of sexuality. This is the first thing we need to learn here, is that each and every one of us has a broken sexuality. We have over-desires, driven by, yeah, corrupt over-desires that are out of step with God's good design for us. But then he turns specifically and deals with homosexuality in particular, so before I, before I go there, let me just make a quick note to say, this is the clearest and most kind of explicit teaching on homosexuality in the New Testament. It's very clear what it's saying. It's also worth saying it is very much at odds with our current culture. This is, the flash, this is one of the biggest flashpoints, I think, between biblical Christianity and our world today. This is, this is, and this is the reason why this, these verses here so you just got to know that. Um, so today as we read this, let us read it with some, some sober humility. We would humble ourselves to hear God's word for us. That's what he says. He says, For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Um, this isn't the, center, the central point of this message, so we're not going to spend forever on this, but because it's significant, let's say a few things. There are three things we're going to, we're going to say. Firstly, in the category of sin, 
grace and then the church to the Christians. Okay? Firstly, sin. I think we can all agree that this is clear. It's pretty clear what he's saying, right? That homosexual practice is contrary to the will of God and out of step with his design for human sexuality. I think it would be hard to read it any other way. Um, and yes, let's also acknowledge that, that that makes this very much at odds with what our world says about this. What did we say a while back? Where do we start when, we, when we're trying to understand sexuality? Do we start with ourselves or do we start with God? When we have a God-centered view, sexuality must be viewed in it, in, with regards to its intent. When we start with a human-centered view, then who cares, right? This is where it all boils down to. It is worth, I think, saying making a distinction here between temptations and actual sin, right? So I'll use myself as an example, and I think I could use anyone in this room, but I'll use myself because it's one of those issues, right? Um, I have desires that are for women who are not my wife. That is wrong. That doesn't honor God. Those are over-desires. That temptation in itself isn't a sin, right? How would I do with them? Definitely are. It can be, right? If I entertain them or act on them, sure. But the fact that they exist within me, well, firstly, it does mean I'm a sinner and I need grace, yes, but it's not an act of sin to have them, right? I think we need to apply the same logic to this issue here. That the temptation of same-sex attraction in itself isn't a sin. It's an over-desire. And we are to submit those to the Lord in worship, in the same way that, um, yeah, so I think that, that distinction of, of temptation and, and sin is important. No, these, those, those desires that to be fought, they're to be submitted to Christ in worship, and it's, it's the entertaining of and acting on those desires that make them sin, and so I think that, but that's true for every single human being. We all have over-desires, no matter which way they're pointed, if they're outside of God's plan for marriage, for sexuality, they become sin, right? I think that's the first important thing to say, that there is a distinction. So if you're here today and you have these, um, yeah, if you have those desires for the same sex, know that those temptations in of themselves aren't sin, in the same way that mine aren't. And yet, it's what we do on them, right? So there are, there are many Christians in the world. I'll use Sam Albury as an example, um, who is a Christian speaker, pastor, uh, who's, who's openly talked about his, his, his wrestles with same-sex attraction, and he submits his desires to the Lord, and he lives a honorable life, and he wrestles with these sins in the same way that everyone wrestles with broken sexuality. Uh, there's many in that category as well. So I just want to acknowledge that. Firstly, grace. There is no sin outside of the grace of God. Full stop. Homosexuality doesn't sit in a special category next to the rest. It is, like the rest of human sin, something that God redeems, can redeem, does redeem. There's no person outside of the grace of God. The gospel is for sinners, all of us. That's me, that's you, that's everyone, regardless of sexuality. Secondly, the gospel is for the sexually broken. That's me, that's you, that's all of us. That's regardless of our wrestles. The gospel is the power of God for salvation, friends. We read that last week. The gospel is the power of God for salvation for all who believes, no matter what it's, what's in our past, no matter what 
present struggles we have today, the gospel is for all of us. Sin, grace, and finally the church. Uh, For the Christians here, I wanted to say a word to you as well. We must hold this one with both truth and love. We must hold this with truth. We must not pretend that this isn't in the Bible. That doesn't serve anyone. We mustn't pretend that uh, God hasn't clearly said what he has said. To do so is not right or loving. It's actually hypocritical and deceitful. Let's not be those people. Let's stand on this. Um, And at the same time, can we just agree that we need to probably get better at how we show compassion around this one? We must have deep compassion, deep patience, deep grace. We must seek to act as Jesus acted to those who were in sexual brokenness. He was very gracious with them. And so the church, this church, needs to be a safe place for all types of people with all types of issues to come and meet God. And I think we could grow in that. Let's be a safe place for all types of people. Let me share one story uh, on behalf of Rosaria Butterfield. You might have heard her name before. She, um, she was an English professor. Uh, she, says, she shares this story in her book, The, uh, the Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Con- Convert, An English Professor's Journey into the Christian Faith. Uh, she, so she was a tenured English professor at Syracuse University, um, PhD on um, queer theory, which is a post- postmodern form of gay and lesbian studies. Uh, she's a skeptic of all things Christianity and was in a committed lesbian relationship. So this, this is who she is. Um, she started reading the Bible so that she can write about the kind of the, so she could use her, like in, on an academic level, so she could kind of confront the Christian teaching from a queer theory point of view, where she was. She said this. She said, I tried to toss the Bible and all of its teachings into the trash. I really tried. But I kept reading, reading it, not just for pleasure, but reading it because I was engaged in a research program trying to refute the religious right from a lesbian feminist perspective. After my second or third or maybe fourth pass through the entire Bible, something started to happen. The Bible got got to be bigger inside me than I. The Bible got to be bigger inside me. This is not a cool way to say it. And it absolutely outflowed into my world. I really fought against it. Then one Sunday morning, no different to any other, I rose from the bed of my lesbian lover and an hour later sat in a pew at Syracuse Reformed Presbyterian Church. I went there very conspicuous of the fact that I did not fit in, but I really had to confront this God. This is what she says later about, the, about her conversion. She says, Jesus triumphed. I was a broken mess. Conversion was a train wreck. I did not want to lose everything I loved, but the voice of God sang, sang a sanguine love song in the rubble of the world, of my world. I weakly believed that if Jesus could conquer death, he could make right my world. I have not forgotten the blood of Jesus, surrendered for this life. She's an unlikely convert, correct? Now she's a mother of four, married to a pastor. That, that part's very odd. Um, but that, that, that's, where, that's where her world went, right? But she, she, was not, she did not go looking for Jesus. <laughs> she went looking for a fight. And, but this is what happens when people actually meet Jesus. Their life gets re-rendered. It does. This is, this is normal. Uh, I will also mention um, Sam Albury, who I mentioned before. He's got a ton of books on this thing. He's got a book called 
Um, is God anti-gay? He's also got a book called Why Does God Care Who I Sleep With? Um, and he's got another one, I think, as well in this kind of area. Um, but he's one of the best voices, I think, in this area. Um, if you want to kind of, if this is something that you really want to dig into a little bit more, I'd highly recommend those books uh, who can speak from their own kind of personal experience with these wrestles. Good place to start. So how, how do we summarize all of that? I think, firstly, we need to say each and every one of us possesses a broken sexuality. All of us. And secondly, our, sexual, our sexuality cannot be fulfilled merely by how we choose. It must be submitted to the Lord. It must be fulfilled in harmony with our Lord who gave it to us as a gift. We must submit our sexuality to our God. The passage finishes with this continual slide into ever-increasing sin. We're not going to dwell here, um, but let me just read it. He says, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of evil, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And, and friends, we're meant to see ourselves there, by the way. We're meant to see ourselves in this. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things ought to die, deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. This is our inheritance as people. This is what we have chosen for ourselves as, as a human race, and so we must conclude today, as we begin to wrap up, we must conclude that we are sinful, <laughs> that we are in need of a saviour, that, that we are guilty and we, we, we have no hope. We have no hope, which leads us to my final point. Nature of God's wrath, the reason for it, the expression of it, and finally, our response. Our response to God's wrath. How do we respond to a message like this? Great question. We're going to go to Acts 2. This is the, the, the first ever sermon ever preached in the history of the church. Acts 2, when the Holy Spirit fell. And Peter preached to the crowd, and this is their response. So now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. They were cut to the heart. We must let Romans 1 have its impact. We must let it grieve us. We must let, must let it cut us to the heart. We can't just run past this kind of heaviness straight to kind of, yeah, but Jesus, it's okay. It's like, let's sit here for a little bit because when we, when we skip past this, we actually short-circuit the gospel, okay? We end up with a very shallow gospel. But if we let this sit on us, when we let the seriousness of our situation actually affect our heart, friends, grace becomes electric. The gospel becomes the, not just good news, it becomes the greatest news. It becomes electric in our lives. We need to let this seriousness affect us. And so, look, some of us, we just simply don't care about our sin. Some of us in this room, we just don't care. You need to hear what Jesus is saying here. We need to hear what the Word of God is saying to you. Be cut to the heart. Receive this warning. Receive this warning. Receive this siren on the train tracks. Get off. You're playing with fire. 
Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Our response to the wrath of God must be humble repentance. Must be repentance. Repentance, what it means is it means turning. It's a, it's a 180 degree turnaround away from sin towards God, right? That's, that is repentance. It is a decision. We must turn back to God. We must turn away from our sin. And some of you today, you need to come to God, maybe for the first time, on your knees, cut to the heart, repent and believe in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. There is forgiveness in the cross. There is. There is forgiveness from the cross. But some of you, you are, you're still suppressing the truth. You're fleeing the light because you love your darkness. It is time to turn away from the darkness and to the light. There is grace in the cross. Today, Jesus, Jesus beckons you, come into the light. Just release your grip on your sin and turn in the name of Jesus. Receive the forgiveness of sin. Receive eternal life. Receive it today. You can have it today. This is what Jesus says in John 3, 36. He says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. The wrath of God remains on him. So receive grace, repent, and believe you can have this. It is yours to have. There is grace for you if you receive it. The sign of repentance, by the way, in this passage, is baptism. Baptism is the symbol of repentance. It is the gift that Jesus has given the church to mark this decision. Baptism doesn't save you. It doesn't wash you clean of your sin. It's a symbol of that. It's a symbol of God's grace to you and your receiving of that grace. It's a sign of obedience to God. Some of us here, we, we do believe in Jesus and haven't been baptized. Friends, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin. You need to. If that's you today, hear this message and come talk to me and we'll talk about following this command of Jesus. Some of us, we... we, we We've really, we are realizing we do believe today. Friends, you need to be baptized in the name of Jesus. If that's you, we'd love to talk to you more about what that means for you. But some of us, yeah, we need to push our chips onto the Jesus square. We need to go all in. We make a decisive decision that, our, that we give our sin to Jesus and we receive his righteousness. This is no small thing. And so I pray that if, I mean, I ask you, if this is you today, that you don't leave today before you have, talk to someone. What I'm going to do, actually, I might ask all the small group leaders if there's any space, maybe down the front, um, just to come grab a seat down the front, uh, and deacons as well, actually. Um, and if, you're, if you'd like to talk to someone, you can come grab me or one of, those, one of the leaders in the church. I'd love to talk and pray with you about what this means. And so while I pray, can I invite the, um, the small group leaders and deacons down the front? And if that's you, please hear the call of Jesus and don't, don't ignore it. Hear the, hear the call of Jesus. Jesus has laid down his life to absorb the wrath of God for you. Jesus doesn't divert the wrath of God. He doesn't kind of like deflect it. He takes it. He absorbs all of it, right? Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. That means there's none left for us. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So receive the gift of Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, on a day like today, I, I know I know, and, and, and um, 
I think we all feel it, Lord, that this is hard for us. It is hard for us. It's hard for us to hear. But Lord, pretending the truth isn't true serves no one. In fact, it hurts us. So I pray that we would hear your call, acknowledge the truth, and submit ourselves to your lordship in our lives. Receive your grace, that we would repent, and we would believe, and we would receive the gift of baptism in your name. Lord, would you make us a humble church? Humble church, Lord. We, if we know where we came from, then how can we ever be arrogant Christians, Lord? Perish the thought. Lord, we know who we are. We are sinners who have been rescued by our good God. Would that make us joyful? Would that make us confident in your grace? Make us humble, gentle with other people, Lord. Gentle with those who disagree with us. Lord, would we hold out the truth in love as you did when you came to this earth, Lord? Lord, I pray for those who, uh, in the words of Jesus, have been loving the darkness and not the light. Lord, and hate the light because of what it does, because it confronts us, demands something of us. Lord, I pray for for those in this room who are in that place. Lord, by your Holy Spirit right now, do a work in them. Holy Spirit, bring new life. Show them the beauty of your ways, the beauty of your gospel, the beauty of your love. Lord, in the dead end that is our sin, the dead end that is our self-autonomy, Lord, one of those ways leads to life, one of them leads to death. Lord, would those in this room pick the good choice? Lord, receive your grace. So Lord, as we stand and we sing now, Lord, we, we sing of your amazing grace. Would those words take on a new life, Lord? We're singing amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Not okay grace, how okay the sound, Lord, but this is... Uh, yeah, Lord, this is amazing grace for us. Lord, would those words ring true? Would we, yeah, Lord, would you get your glory today? Lord, we want to repent, submit ourselves to your goodness, your grace. Have your way in this church. Have, a, have your way in all of us. Amen. All right, Peter.